controlling your blood sugar, you know, I, I sometimes joke that I want people to care about their blood sugar the way that they care about their retirement accounts because it is your retirement account. <laughs> like it is, yeah. it is the most important lever when it comes to brain health and such an important lever when it comes to the brain body connection. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey friends, it's me, Dr. Stephanie, and welcome to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am so happy to welcome you back this week. And do I have a treat for you? I do. This week, I sat down with Dr. Sarah Gottfried. And Sarah doesn't know this yet, but she's my new best friend. Um, And I will tell you that the reason why she's my new best friend is it was so, this conversation was so enlightening to me because it is very rare that you find other women in my line of work that have a comprehensive understanding of all the different silos in female health and female physiology. So Dr. Sarah can riff on brain health. She can riff on hormones. She can riff on keto. She can riff on uh, being pleasure deficient. She can riff on frameworks and mindset and self-love. And uh, maybe you're seeing why I love her so much because she reminds me of me. We talked about her book. It's been out for a while now, but it is an incredibly relevant piece of work, The Brain Body Diet. And in case you haven't heard of Dr. Sarah Gottfried, she is a medical doctor and a board certified gynecologist. She's a researcher and an educator. Graduated from Harvard Medical School and the MIT or Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And she has in her 25 year career seen over 25,000 patients. So this woman has something to say and potentially some pattern recognitions in her clinical expertise. So we talked about all the good things. So we started talking about the differences in the male and female brain, what she calls the broken seven. And we went into a beautiful meandering conversation on pleasure, on addiction, on the ketogenic diet, on set point, what left nostril breathing is, anxiety, depression, addiction, you name it. This podcast is going to be so useful for any woman or the other humans, other human people who uh, love women on how we can support our beautiful women and bringing them back to harmonious balance. So just before we get into the podcast, I wanted to just honor you, my listeners, because you have been leaving such wonderful reviews for me 
across all platforms. And I just wanted to thank you so much. It is so wonderful to receive the feedback that I am receiving on the podcast. And I just wanted to take a moment to highlight Brookline 3 from the United States. And Brookline says, this is the best. This show dives deep into the most relevant emerging breakthroughs in science today, whilst making these topics so relatable and easy to digest. I love Dr. Stephanie's delivery, L-O-V-E is in caps. I love Dr. Stephanie's delivery and her love and respect for her guests is palpable. A true highlight to my week. Well, thank you. I truly receive that. And I cannot tell you how this puts, I hope you can hear the smile on my face when I get to know that this work is been, has been meaningful for you. And if you're wanting to do a bit more of a deeper dive and become part of my nerd army, uh, if you want to figure out and uh, learn how you can actually reclaim your hormones hormones through diet and through some of the things that we talk about in today's podcast, just head on over to estimadiet.com. That's E-S-T-I-M-A-D-I-E-T.com. And there I have the juiciest masterclass there for you. It's only 18 minutes, so it's not too long, but I do give you some of the best points, the best parts of why my program for losing weight, reclaiming your energy, getting rid of your brain fog is the solution for you if those are things that are important to you and how you can use the strategies that I outline in the Estima Diet for the long term. I, If you know me by now, you know that I play the long game. The short game is for chumps and I love to play the long game when it comes to longevity, when it comes to energy, when it comes to uh, feeling embodied, feeling sexy, and feeling like the goddess that you are. So with that said, on to the show. Please enjoy my conversation with my new bestie, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Welcome to The Better Show. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. It's really few and far between to find healthcare practitioners who just focus on on women. And then of that population, and even fewer that focus on the neurobiology of a, a woman's integrity and her constitution. So I'm really, really excited to be. We're going to go on a geeky magic carpet ride together today. Uh... <laughs> All good. Yeah. <laughs> So just to kind of get us started and to get things warmed up a bit, you have a very typical, what I would call a heroine's journey where, you know, you were chasing what we would deem as, you know, you graduated from a very prestigious school, have a great practice, very well known. And you know, all the accolades, all the things that I would ascribe, and I've done this myself in terms of these more masculine uh, pursuits and, or what, what are deemed, you know, you know, socially acceptable as, and, and more masculine uh, achievements. Uh, But then you had a traumatic brain injury. Um, And I would love for you, just for the listener who hasn't heard your story, for you to describe what happened and how that potentially changed your pursuit of health for you personally, and if it has changed your, the way that you practice. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like I've been guided with so many different things that have happened to me. And so what, what you're referring to is a fall that I had. This was January 31st, 2015. 
and I was with a, a group of doctor friends in San Diego. We, we shot a live stream all day long. And it was one of those days, as you described, that I would, I would say was um, overly ambitious and yes, uh, sort of filled with toxic masculine energy. Meaning that I hadn't eaten all day, the bathroom was too far away, and it was kind of a hassle with my Spanx and my dress, so I, I just, I didn't hydrate. And so we pushed hard all day long. We had a great day in terms of um, connecting with our audience. But then we found ourselves at about 10 o'clock at night, sitting in a kitchen, trying to figure out what to eat. And that's when things got interesting. <laughs> so I ended up fainting. And I, I fell back in this kitchen so hard and hit my head on a, a tile floor. Um, I hit my head on a, like a granite tabletop on the way down. And I hit so hard that I had what looked like seizures. Um, and I, I woke up after a few minutes, I was surrounded by this group of doctor friends. And so they, they coded me, they sort of, you know, tried to resuscitate me. And then I, I blacked out again. And I had another episode of what looked like seizures. And so in retrospect, I look at this situation. And for me, it was a a call to action. It was a message about how hard driving I was, how um, I was am ambitious at the expense of my body. So I was kind of, I would say I was operating from the neck up. I was sort of, you know, letting my brain sort of run the show, not keeping in mind, okay, I need to have stable blood sugar. I need to hydrate myself. I need to hydrate my cells. I need to take breaks. I need to do some deep belly breathing throughout the day. All those things that we know to do intuitively, but I was overriding them. And so, you know, what I discovered later was that I definitely had a problem with my blood sugar. I didn't know a lot about it then, but I had this episode of hypoglycemia, which may show up more in women, especially reactive hypoglycemia. And I just wasn't taking care of myself the way that I needed to. So this, you know, what, what happened out of all of this, and I feel like these sort of events are messages from the universe that we need to de decode, right? I see that knowing smile on your face <laughs> for those <laughs> yeah. that are watching the video. Yes. So, you know, this was a message about the connection between my body and my brain, which I was totally ignoring. And, you know, before this, I, I understood about stress. I understood about, um, you know, some of the basic needs that we have. But I, I don't think I was looking at it in an integrated way until I got hit over the head with this uh, epiphany. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the differences between the male and the and the female brain. I know that there are, we, we talk about this in your book, The Brain Body Diet. So we're going to link to the show notes, in the show notes, all the, all the things that we referenced today. But there are some poignant differences. So you were talking about, you know, not hydrating, not breathing, sort of pushing through this more, this more masculine energy. And we know that, I, I often joke that we've all, women have often been looked at as these like smaller versions of men with like pesky hormones, right? But there are structural and functional differences between the cortices of the of the of the 
male and the female. So can we maybe double click on that and talk a little bit about some of those differences before we sort of get into some of the juicier bits from your book? Well, I love talking about sex differences and also gender differences between men and women, because I, I think this, you know, I, back in college when I took women's studies classes, I sort of looked at this in a different way. Um, because I think women had been dismissed and ignored for so long. Now I look at it more from a place of how do we understand sex and gender differences so that all of us can elevate our health? Because understanding the difference between the male brain and the female brain, for instance, can help us understand the male brain better too. So when it comes to the differences, you're right, there's structural and functional differences. There's molecular differences that are pretty substantial. So there's the obvious things like the sex hormones. We know that, you know, women have much more estradiol through their reproductive years. That's one of the members of the estrogen family. We have less testosterone than men. And this creates some differences between the brain. Although I want to make a point about testosterone. I feel like folks don't understand that the most abundant hormone in the female body is testosterone. So even though we have 10 times less testosterone than men, we are exquisitely sensitive to it. It is so important for our confidence and our agency and our sense of power in the world. So I don't want to dismiss that particular piece. When you image the female brain and you compare it to the male brain, what we know is that researchers can tell with about 85% certainty the difference between the male and female brain. And some of those differences include uh, the hippocampus, that seat of uh, memory consolidation and emotional regulation. The hippocampus is bigger in the females. And the amygdala, the part of the brain that's always searching the horizon for threat, tends to be bigger in men. So I'm generalizing here, but those are some of the key differences. There's some other differences as well in terms of uh, the what I think of as the gut-brain axis, you know, the vagal activity tends to be higher in women. So there's some other subtle differences, but those are kind of the key, key ones. Yeah. And that's, and that's great. And I'm really excited to, I I definitely want to be talking about the gut brain axis and the connection um, today, because there are, as you said, there are areas in the brain, the hippocampus, the cerebellum tends to be bigger in in men. So that, that motor coordination tends to be a little bit more, uh, there tends to be more robust, density of neurons there. Um, And even our prefrontal cortex, like females tend to have a larger prefrontal cortex to your point, because we marinate, because it's, you know, exquisitely sensitive to estradiol. So if you marinate the brain in the phenotype estrogen, you're going to have areas that are, that are going to be bigger, like the PFC, um, like the hippocampus. And that's why women with stealth-like accuracy, right? They can like pick up subtleties in your facial expressions. They can figure, you know, they can sort of read between the lines because, um, because we can, we can, we just tend to be stronger with nonverbal communication for that too. I just uh, uh, wanted to point that out. And I, and I love the, the differences that you've highlighted. So yeah, let's I, talk- I, like, yes. I like that you added the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, because I think of this as the CEO of the brain. And, you know, what we're learning as there's more women in the C-suites and more women on boards is that boards perform better when women are on them. Female CEOs perform at a really high level. 
And, you know, they still make up the minority of CEOs, at least, well, in the U.S. and probably globally. But that's changing. Mm -hmm. And I I think understanding some of these uniquenesses that women have really helps us kind of understand emotional intelligence and how that maps onto uh, the way we function as a society, as a culture. I love that. Yeah, I was. Um, I have a. I have a theory that the. Uh, well, it's not just my theory. It's the things I've read, and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. I'll take that. Um, the insula, which is the area in the brain that sort of receives the information from the micro. We always talk about women's intuition, right? Like the women always listening to your women's intuition, and the insula, which is an area that sort of talks to uh, the gut, is also larger in women. So um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. But before, before we do that, can you define, because I want to talk about the, the, the broken seven that you talk about in the book, but what, what is a, when we talk about dissonance between the brain and the body, you call this the brain body failure. Can you explain what that is and maybe some clinical uh, pearls or insights? If you had a woman coming into, you know, to your office, that's you know, maybe in her mid forties and her mid fifties, and you're suspecting that you're seeing that brain body failure. What are some cues or some clues that you might be picking up on with her? Great question. So there's a lot of them. (laughs) And, you know, one of the things that I think is an important clue is, uh, vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, and starting to, to notice some mood changes, um, especially in women in their 40s. So I'm a big believer in more information about perimenopause. I think perimenopause is such a pivotal time in a woman's life cycle. And it's a, it's a time where, unfortunately, women start to get dismissed more they go to their primary care doctor and they explain they're having night sweats or they explain, okay, I'm not, I don't have major depression, but I've got this moodiness that I never had before. And they often will get, um, you know, sort of patted on the back and told, well, you're getting older, you're not sleeping as much, you know, you have young kids, that's the reason. And no one bothers to check their blood sugar. No one bothers to check their insulin level. No one bothers to look at, you know, some of these factors that are so important between the body and the brain. So hot flashes, night sweats, I think are, are really important. I think mood is such an important indicator. It's like a, a barometer, I think, of the brain-body connection. And it's also, you know, I think hormones drive what you're interested in. And as your hormones start to change, that can be, you know, right after having a baby, postpartum is a really common time to have this, but also in perimenopause. And and the way that I think about the hormonal changes in perimenopause is maybe a little different than uh, some other folks. I don't see it as, you know, kind of the sputtering that happens down to zero. It's more like um, this initial first phase of perimenopause, which typically is between like 40 and 45, where you're estrogen starts to fluctuate wildly and progesterone declines. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a period of relative estrogen dominance or dis-estrogenism. And then the second half is when, second half of perimenopause is when estrogen starts to decline. It's not fluctuating wildly quite as much. And overall, it's less than what you had. And we know that for women who are really sensitive to their estrogen levels and to their testosterone levels, it can lead to mood changes. 
And what I, what I always ask my patients is, you know, tell me about your pregnancy. What was your mood like? What was your mood like after you gave birth, you know, if they've had children? Because that postpartum period is often a preview of coming attractions um, in terms of the brain-body connection. So I mentioned estradiol and progesterone, but there's also thyroid, there's testosterone, of course, there's cortisol. So I, I think cortisol is in many ways the elephant in the room in terms mm. of brain body connection in, in both directions, because mm -hmm. we know the gut brain axis is bidirectional. Yes. So I think those are some key issues. Another one is um, the mitochondria. I have so many patients who give me this clue. They say, you know, I, I love to exercise. I've exercised regularly, but I, I just don't recover the way that I used to. Or I'm just, I'm so tired. I can't do burst training. I know you told me I should do some HIIT training. I just can't do it. I'm too exhausted. Mm -hmm. So that level of kind of exercise fatigue is another clue of what could be going on. Now, there's also the work, if we could get geeky for just a moment here. Oh, please. <laughs> there's the work of Lisa Moscone, who I think is super interesting. She just published XX Brain. And what she's shown is that 80% of women over the age of 40, start to have the slowdown of their brain energy, 80% of women. So that always makes me curious about, okay, what's going on in that other 20%? I want to study them and see what's, what's different. What do the outliers look like? Yeah, yeah. What do the outliers look like? And then for these women, the 80% who have this slowdown, the technical term for it is uh, cerebral hypometabolism. What we know from PET scans that Lisa has done is that the way that glucose moves around in the brain starts to change. It declines. And it's sub substantial. It's like a 15% decrement in uh, perimenopause and like a 20 plus percent decrement in menopause. And when I explain this to my patients, when I say to them, listen, do you find that your brain is slower than it was before? Are you having more difficulty multitasking? You know, are you walking into a room and you can't remember why? Like, those are some of the clues mm -hmm. that tell you that this brain-body connection could be disrupted. And is it because the glucose, do we know that, you know, the, the way that the glucose is transporting, is it that it's not being taken up by the cells as efficiently anymore? So you're having more glucose that is not being used to make ATP? Is that, is that what that is? I would say the mechanism isn't totally clear yet. We, you know, what, what I understand from Lisa's research, and this, is, um, this was just discovered in the last couple of years. Yeah. What I understand from her research is that it seems to be the decline in estrogen in the brain that kicks off this process. Right. But the point you're making, I think, is important too. You know, is this related to what I think of as insulin block or insulin resistance, where your cells become numb to insulin in the rest of the body. Like, is it also happening in the brain? Yeah. And so there seems to be a correlation between the two. And we know that, you know, these, these could be some of the very early steps that lead over a few decades to Alzheimer's disease. And as someone who has Alzheimer's in my family, I'm super interested in that particular area. And so we know that the same enzyme, insulin-degrading enzyme, that deals with your blood sugar and trying to stabilize your blood sugar is also the enzyme that helps to break down beta amyloid. Right. So controlling your blood sugar, you know, I, I sometimes joke that I want people to care about their, their blood sugar the way that they care about their retirement accounts. Because 
it is your retirement account. Like it is, it is the most important lever when it comes to brain health and such an important lever when it comes to the brain body connection. I just, uh, earlier this week was just, uh, you and I were chatting about this. I just, uh, interviewed, uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen. So we were talking exactly about what you're talking about, this insulin degradating enzyme, how it is one of the factors that, uh, degrades and eats up some of those beta amyloid plaques. Um, I think we were also, I can't remember if we touched on this, or we were talking about this in the pre-chat, but and we'll get to this. I want to get to this with my conversation with you as well. But zinc supplementation can also upregulate neprilysin, which is another um, uh, compound that will also degrade those uh, beta amyloid plaques and those and those tau tangles. So I am in a hundred percent agreement with you. I think that understanding the glucose insulin dance that you have, not only, you know, we can talk about weight. I mean, we always, I have always women coming to me first for weight, but then once we get past the, you know, the, the more superfluous reason, we talk about healthy brain aging and promoting healthy brain aging and function and brain fog. Like that is the, probably the number one thing that I have, that I, that I have women complaining about is this constant, foggy thinking. So I, I wanted to maybe talk about that and we can we can parse that with a conversation around set point because in your book, you talk about this idea that 80% of women are unhappy. I mean, it's such a disheartening set that 80% of women are dissatisfied with their bodies in some way. And part of that is because there's this continuous uh, creep, if you will, of an increasing weight. And the other flip side to that, which I think is actually two sides of the same coin, is this idea of brain fog where this woman come, you know, she's, there's some chronic low-grade stress, chronic low-grade inflammation, um, and she has this foggy thinking and she's not able to focus, she's not productive, she's not able to concentrate. So can you maybe talk about what are some of the contributing factors to, and we can, we can do this one at a time, we can talk about set point first like what what are some of the reasons why a woman's weight would continue to increase over time and then i'd like to kind of flip that around and, and talk about brain fog absolutely well so your previous question was about you know what are the symptoms what are the clues of a disrupted brain body connection and yeah. i think brain fog is one of the most important ones i agree with you that weight is also important because i think this rising set point, as it is with you, it's the thing that gets a lot of women into the door of my medical practice. And then once we start to look under the hood, we see all these other um, issues that need to be addressed. So I think that's really key. Anxiety, depression, those are other clues. Addiction, um, I think our understanding of addiction in this context is really poor, mm-hmm. um, but we're making some progress. And then early memory loss, since you mentioned Dale, I feel like I have to tip my hat to him. Uh, so with brain fog, um, I think that's another important clue of cerebral hypometabolism, of this slowdown that happens in the brain that Lisa Moscone has researched so well. and. What was interesting to me, Stephanie, is that I have a lot of patients who complain to me of brain fog. And when I went to the medical literature to start to look at this, I realized that it's, it's not considered a real entity. 
by conventional medicine. Now, this isn't the first time I've been disappointed by <laughs> mainstream medicine, but um, it makes it much harder to research and to understand the underlying mechanisms and then to come up with the proven solutions when you don't even consider it a problem to start with. Right, right, right. From more of a precision medicine, personalized medicine, functional medicine perspective, I think of brain fog as the clue, a more specific clue than brain body disconnection. It's about membrane permeability. So it makes me think of loss of integrity of the intestinal lining and also loss of integrity of the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of the way I think about brain fog. I especially see it, um, I certainly see it in my patients who are in perimenopause and menopause. I certainly see it in my patients who have blood sugar issues, which, you know, if you look carefully enough for it, as I'm sure you do, it's, you know, 50 to 70% of my patients. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the other population that I see it in a lot is my patients who come to me who are breast cancer survivors and they've had chemotherapy, they have chemo brain. Mm. Um, I think that's another really important population, but you raised this point about um, the adipostat, the set point. And I think this is a really important topic because, you know, what I found as I tried to navigate my 30s, and I imagine this is true for a lot of our listeners and viewers, is that uh, I had my first baby at 32, and I had my second baby at 38, and it was so hard to lose the baby weight. I mean, first of all, I gained too much because I, I have a food addiction tendency, and when you're pregnant, that's when you, know, you just I'm stand eating for in front two. of the <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you think you're eating for two. It's like, no, you're eating for 1.05. I know. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> yeah. So, so I gained all this weight and then I, you know, all the usual tricks that I had in terms of exercise and cutting calories and even cutting carbohydrates just didn't do the trick when I was trying to lose the weight postpartum. And so we know that um, that's a really vulnerable time, but even for women who haven't had children, what we know is that there tends to be this kind of steady increase of gaining weight. And unfortunately, especially over the age of 40, it tends to be more fat mass and less muscle mass, yeah. which also you know, disrupts that uh, body-brain connection. So the adipostat starts to change. And the way that the adipostat or the set point in the brain works is that it closely monitors your calories, probably your macronutrients, and makes adjustments in hormones, downstream hormones, such as ghrelin, the hormone that tells you to pick up the fork, and leptin, so that you, you know, your appetite is supposed to be closely regulated. But what I find in a lot of my patients is that the adipostat gets jammed. And I certainly experienced this in my late 30s, where I just was hungry all the time. And it was very hard to manage until I started to address the hormonal root cause, mm -hmm. which in my case was related to leptin and insulin and ghrelin. It's interesting. I find most of the women, just as an aside, sort of a clinical pearl, I find that most of the women that I work with, they have some degree of leptin insensitivity, meaning that when they should be putting the fork down, as you said, so ghrelin is the thing that makes you you know, pick the fork up. Leptin is the one that makes you put the fork down. Like, okay, I've had enough. Um, 
there, there's one, they, they will over consume calories to the point where it, you know, the, 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 the leptin uh, action on the hypothalamus in the brain is just not there. And there's been quite a few, there's been quite a few studies that are actually quite old. And when I first found these, I, 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 I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard of them earlier, but literally for every measure of BMI, every measure of body weight, women compared to men, women have more leptin insensitivity. So they will eat, they will consume more calories at that, any given level of obesity. So we are just exquisitely sensitive, I think, to becoming more leptin insensitive just just by proxy of being a woman and i can't tell you why that is it could be that we have more adipose tissue um but you know leptin is secreted from from the adipose tissue so there's it's just this down regulation from the hypothalamus for i mean maybe you have a better an explanation that i haven't come across yet but i I don't have yeah i don't have an explanation but i i I want to validate what you just said, because I I certainly see this in my practice. And I think, you know, if I put on sort of my um, paleolithic ancestral hat here, it makes sense to me that women have kind of this more tightly conserved um, adipostat and have this bias toward gaining weight compared Mm -hmm. to men. Yeah. So, you know, I wish with the adipostat that you could just kind of take it on and, you know, uh, start exercising in a certain way, like with high intensity interval training and not chronic cardio, start eating the right foods, and then you can just, you know, get your set point back to where you want it. But the truth is for women, there's this bias where it's asymmetric, meaning that it's so much easier for women to gain weight than it is for them to lose weight compared to men. And so there's a number of reasons for that. I think the key reason is, we evolved as women to have more fat, to um, be fertile, to have you know sort of this evolutionary pressure to keep producing our hormones that support our menstrual cycle. And the key hormone there is luteinizing hormone. So we wanna make enough luteinizing hormone so that we're ovulating every month. And we know that if you calorie restrict, it can keep that, that luteinizing hormone from pulsing from spiking the way that it's supposed to in the middle of your cycle around day 12 to 14. So I think that's part of the reason here um, why there's more leptin resistance when you compare BMI between men and women. I think it's also, this is a different topic altogether, this is my next book, but I think it's also one of the reasons why women have much more difficulty with a ketogenic diet compared to men. So that's a super juicy little bomb that I'm going to drop in the middle here. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. But I, I was, I, I am on board with you. I have a, I have a, an online program. A keto, it's a ketogenic program for women. But I am also not of the opinion that a woman should be in a state of ketosis for the rest of her life. I think that there's a therapeutic intervent. There's a therapeutic nutritional window where we can help her get metabolically flexible and help her start to utilize ketones. And, you know, we were just talking about brain fog, like getting that as a substrate for ATP production. I think that there's a lot of benefit to that, but I think that you need to pulse it with a woman. You have to, you know, and we're, you know, talking about the brain, you have to save her neurotransmitters too, right? Like, um, her dopamine levels, her serotonin levels, you know, to kind of circle back and sort of tie it up with a bow in terms of 
mood. And, and I think that when we, when we think about it in the context of weight, um, in the book you talk about, in the brain body diet, you talk about um, hedonic eating and uh, homeostatic eating. And I'm right now I'm reading this book. So I, I read in preparation for our conversation today, of course, I devoured this book, which is amazing. I'm also reading another book. Uh, it's called The Pleasure Zone by Stella Resnick. And it's a fabulous book. She talks about how as women, we are pleasure de- like de- uh, um, devoid and we actually avoid pleasure, just the way that we're cultured, the way that we're supposed to be martyrs and all this. But it can, there was something that connected. So I, had, I was reading her book and then I, was, I came back to your book the next day and you were talking about this idea of hedonic eating. And I'm like, that's why we become addicted because this is the, literally food becomes the only source of pleasure you know, we like wine and chocolate become these deities that we, that we worship because, <laughs> because we don't have anything else. There's not, there's nothing else in our lives that, that give us pleasure. Um, yeah, but, we have a pleasure deficit. I totally yeah. agree with you. Yeah. And it's, so I, I love that you brought this up because, um, you know, I started conceiving a brain body diet about 10 years ago when I heard this quote from Christian Northrup, and it, it feels like this is a good place to read the quote. Can I read it? Of course, please. Yeah. <laughs> so this is from chapter five called Hooked. And Chris Northrup was an early mentor of mine. I actually saw her in like 1988. She was doing a PBS special. And this was when I was, I was getting a PhD in bioengineering. And mm. I, I ended up dropping out of this PhD program and going into medicine because I just believe so much in what Chris Northrup was saying about women's bodies and how we have to change the conversation. We have to change the way that we conceive of women's health. I love her. I love her too. So she, here's what she said. Women today are asked to be holy in one place, W-H-O-L-Y, and then go home and be holy in another with their family with no model for wholeness. Unless there's an ego strong enough to integrate the two, it leaves a hole in the center and into that hole falls addictive behavior. So I think it's exactly that point that you're making that we're so, we have such a enormous pleasure deficit and we run around, well, we run around a little less during the pandemic, but uh, we tend to overprovide provide uh, that martyr archetype that you were describing. And then I think it's very common for us to reach for food. I certainly did like the chocolate and the wine and the other pleasures to try to fill that hole. Yeah. So it's, you know, of course it doesn't work very well, but it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense and it sets us up for these sticky relationships with food. You know, I'll often say to a patient that I'm seeing, especially someone with brain fog or with issues with her body weight set point, I'll say, you know, tell me what you're drinking. And she's just like, well, I live in the Bay Area. You know, I, I go to Napa. We've got a wine cellar. You know, I, I share a bottle of wine with my husband every night, of course. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that, okay, alcohol is the, is the number one disruptor of your gut integrity, right? That's what they give to animals to induce leaky gut. And we know that it slows down metabolism. We know that it tends to make you puffy and uh, it's certainly a neurotoxin. So I'm not saying you, know, you should never drink, but I think we have to figure out you know, what's the right dose and 
what is it we're trying to feed with sharing a bottle of wine? You know, is there some other way to fill that need? I, I have to say, I cannot find one positive thing about alcohol. Like, I, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, chemically, you know, as you were saying, you know, it's going to always go to the front of the line. The liver is always going to try to get rid of it first in, and, and it won't, you know, detoxify or conjugate all the other things that it's trying to do, trying to get rid of. I can't, I can't justify I, I don't drink, I don't drink. So I'm going to, this is a very, this is potentially going to be very unpopular for people that are listening to this, but I, I cannot find any justification for alcohol. Even the, we had uh, David Sinclair on, on the podcast and he was talking about, you know, his discoveries with resveratrol and how, you know, the, then of course, you know, the media took it and ran and, oh, the red wine, it's like so great for you. It, the amount of wine that you would need to, get the amount of resveratrol that would be clinically significant. You'd be drinking barrels and even at one or two glasses. I mean, I, I, people don't like me when I say this, but I don't, I don't think that there's any use for alcohol. I think that it is completely destructive to our physiology. As you were saying, it makes you puffy. It's a neurotoxin. There's, it disrupts your gut integrity. You're just propagating. You're just passing the buck forward. You know? I agree. I, I can't find uh, evidence to support it. And we even know that, you know, the data on longevity and reduction of cardiovascular disease, all of that has been reconsidered. And there doesn't seem to be a safe lower limit of alcohol. Yeah. I think that's uh, the point that you're making. On the other hand, I do understand that some of my patients really enjoy the taste of it and they're able to modulate. So they're able to get to a low enough dose that it's not affecting their liver enzymes. It's not you know, disrupting their estrogen metabolism pathways. So you know, I, I also have come out against alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. And I, I would say it's probably my least popular of all of the stands that I have. On the other hand, um, I'm somewhat agnostic on this point in that I don't want to exclude people who aren't quite ready to acknowledge the risks of alcohol or even to admit that they have a sticky relationship with it. Mm -hmm. So um, I just want to make sure that the tent is open for all people. And, you know, if you want to keep drinking and you want to sort of look at your relationship to alcohol and look at what's going on with your gut function, what's going on with your liver function, how's it working for your adipostat, then I think that kind of query is invited and welcome. That's so well said. So it's much better than my extreme view, like no alcohol ever. Well, you know, <laughs> Stephanie, you know this, when you have a more extreme view, mm -hmm. it also is a really clear bright red line for people. Right. And often that's what we want. Like I, I had a cardiologist say to me last July, he looked at my genes, which I had looked at, you know, 10 years before he looked at my genes and he said, you're a slow metabolizer of caffeine. You will never drink anything with caffeine in it again. And I was just like, what, <laughs> what about my matcha? Like I'm not drinking coffee. I'm drinking green tea. Yeah. Yeah. But there was something so valuable in him saying, no, non-negotiable. Yeah. Like your risk of cardiovascular events is threefold higher than someone who's a, a fast metabolizer. Yeah. And so I think that kind of really 
black and white thinking can be very helpful mm-hmm. as a clinician and a healer. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I wanted to maybe bridge what we're, what we're talking about now with uh, the chapter around addiction, this uh, in your book. And this was, I mean, I was the president of the dopamine insufficiency. <laughs> like you were talking, I was like, oh, that was me. I had, I had, I was there. <laughs> so, and, and women can be so uh, disconnected from how we're feeling. And in the, in the book you talk about, uh, there, I, I believe her name is Marnie. She, uh, I think you called it idling high. So she was just very uncomfortable with not doing anything with slowing down and use things like, you know, socially acceptable things like exercise and working as, um, as ways for her to get that dopamine, uh, hit. I was, before we kind of go in there, can you explain what your views are on dopamine insufficiency, how prevalent you think they are with women? And maybe before we do that, I don't know if you want to talk about the reward deficiency syndrome. It's sort of the same, uh, same concept, but kind of tie those, those all together. Sure. Well, I think, I think this is a very common problem. It's hard to know the epidemiology of it because Dopamine, like a lot of neurotransmitters, is a pretty complex system. And so I think this is more of a, maybe a sociocultural uh, diagnosis. But I know, for instance, um, one of the things I check with a lot of my patients is their COMPT, their COMPT mm-hmm. gene. Mm-hmm. And this is the gene that helps you metabolize catecholamines. It's also known as the explorer gene because, uh, and I don't know what your comp status is or even if you want to share that, but what I know with my comp status is that I am uh, Val-Val. And what that means is that I chew through catecholamine so fast. And so I run around in this dopamine depleted state and I'm always looking for like the next shiny object. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the ways that we think of this is... um, has a lot of, you know, sort of uh, taglines. This gene is also known as the corporate warrior gene because people who behave like me tend to do well in stressful situations up to a point. Mm -hmm. So people who are slower metabolizers of dopamine, they they tend to worry more. Um, That's more the Woody Allen gene. (laughs) And so it's, it's, it's a, a way that, you know, what I, I think of if we go back to that corporate warrior analogy, folks who tend to um, more slowly metabolize dopamine, they tend to really consider all the options very carefully when they're faced with a decision. They're not, you know, kind of grabbing, grasping for the next hit in terms of uh, life experiences. And so there's a spectrum of behaviors that we see here. And I think The important part with Marnie and with other patients who have reward deficiency syndrome is that there needs to be this intercept where we look at their behavior. So one of the things that Marnie had as an example is that she exercised so much that she had a stress fracture. And normally when you have a stress fracture, you rest, you stop exercising. But Marnie didn't because she's just like, I don't care. Like I want the endorphins. Like I feel so good when I exercise that I'm going to keep exercising even with my stress fracture. And that's where you cross a line. That's mm-hmm. basically the definition of addiction, where you 
you continue doing behaviors despite evidence of their harm. So that was where she crossed the line, she crossed the line in a few other places. But I think of her particular issue with, as you described, these socially acceptable addictions as spread addiction. Because if you look at her individual behaviors, they don't necessarily add up to a formal diagnosis of addiction. But when you look at them in aggregate, there's this, there's this behavior, there's this um, pattern of reward deficiency and trying to fill that hole, the same hole that Chris Northrup was talking about. Yeah. I'm, I'm heterozygous for, uh, for comp. So I have a little bit of both. Um, I like to call it the entrepreneur gene because it's like you get a hit, right? You're like, oh, great. I climbed this mountain. Wonderful. What's the next thing? Like you don't take any time to celebrate. You just, you're kind of onto the next thing. Like, let me get the next thing. Let me get the next thing. Yes. So this, I, I thought that this was such an important uh, chapter. I think it could be its own book, truthfully. What, what would be some ways, and again, with, with a gentle loving hand, because some people are not even aware, like you, some people are not even aware or open to the idea that they may be addicted to exercise. And especially like all the research, everyone's always talking about how it is, it has the same efficacy as an antidepressant that, you know, people will self-medicate using, um, uh, using exercise as a as a proxy for uh, mood regulation. So, what are what are some of the ways if someone is open to begin to heal that dopamine insufficiency or that spread that you were that you were referring to? Sure. Well, I think one of the factors, you know, if we if we think in terms of a sequence, I like to. I'm an engineer, so I like to think in terms of okay, what do you dress first? What do you dress second? I think we have to start with this um, idling high, with this level of hyper arousal, and you know, it's amazing to me. Part of it might be just living in the Bay Area. How many of my patients have this kind of base case of hyper arousal? where they're you know, jacked up by caffeine in the morning, they're breathing shallowly, maybe they have some palpitations, maybe not, maybe they don't notice them. And they have kind of this, this level of rev that's not a good fit for their body. That was certainly the case for me in 2015 before I had my fall. I had this level of red rev that was not a constitutional fit for the rest of my body. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to get honest about whether a person has hyperarousal. And then, you know, there's so many different ways to work with hyperarousal. So many mind-body techniques. There's supplements that help with that. Um, I'm sure you have a long list of things that you use to help. I, I saw that you had uh, a guided meditation on your podcast. I think, you know, for a lot of these women, this is the place to start because they're not going to go sit on a cushion and meditate for 30 minutes starting tomorrow, but they'll listen to your guided meditation. Mm -hmm. Like they'll do that for some period of time. And that's the first step. Like it's these baby steps that really add up over time. 
It's funny. So much of my of my protocols were born out of a need to help myself. You know, like I used to. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was the person that was telling patients, "Oh, you know what? You need to meditate," and never doing it myself because I thought somehow I was above it or I didn't need it. But they but they needed it, right? And of course, when I started actually doing the meditation, I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah." All the research that I read, this is what they're talking about. You you mentioned uh, Kundalini a lot in your book. And I just wanted to pause here and maybe talk about Kundalini a little bit because as a, I'm a, I'm a licensed chiropractor. So for me, my, my awareness, my focus of study when I was uh, both in my brick and mortar practice and, and, you know, all through, all through school was all about the neurostructural integrity of the spine, the nervous system, alignment, symmetry, flexibility, mobility, and Kundalini has always been in my periphery. I have been, I, I just had a conversation with um, uh, Dr. Kelly Brogan uh, recently. She's going to be on the podcast and she's a Kundalini teacher and she was talking a lot about it. I wondered if you can talk about Kundalini as a, as a proxy or as a means as well for helping with, well, I mean, it, it can help for many, many things. I think lymphatic drainage and alignment of the spine and flexibility, but as it relates to uh, dopamine, is there, is there a, um, a protocol or a, a usage there for Kundalini? There is. Um, so I learned yoga from my great grandmother when I was five and I, I've practiced yoga for a long time, but the way that I practiced really changed over time. And when I became a certified yoga teacher in the, in my thirties, it was with vinyasa. It was kind of a Jiva Mukti um, lineage. And that was the kind of yoga that I practiced, you know, just, sun salutations flow, um, a more young practice. And when I hit my head and I had to just, you know, lie in a dark room for months on end, I started to practice Kundalini because, you know, I, I wasn't supposed to sort of jog my brain. <laughs> I was supposed to be much more quiet and intentional. And so that's when I started to do Kundalini yoga and to read more about it. Um, and there's one teacher in particular that I'm friendly with, uh, Guru Jagat, who I think is really awesome. And she had just published a book around this time where she had a meditation for habituation, which I, she allowed me to publish in the book. Um, it's in the hook chapter where she talks about a way of working with hyperarousal and with any sort of habituation that you'd notice. And I love her use of the word habituation because you know, it's where you are creating a habit out of one of your behaviors that may or may not be good for you. Mm. And it's less loaded, less uh, stigmatizing than the word addiction. So Kundalini yoga, I think of as kind of this um, one of many mind-body practices that's specifically aimed at working on um, the brain-body connection. What they say in Kundalini, and there's some evidence to support this, is that they're really focused on the pineal gland, which is right behind your third eye, and trying to, you know, this is more in the spiritual language, trying to increase blood flow and increase a sense of balance. And so the belief is that there's this downstream benefit of better dopamine trafficking in the brain. I don't believe that that's been proven, but lack of proof isn't, uh, you know, evidence Lack against. of evidence is not evidence of lack, yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
So I think Kundalini yoga can be really powerful. It's, it was certainly helpful for me um, personally. And, you know, I, I think some other issues, I also, I tend to focus on supplements because I imagine this might be true for your patients too. You know, you can't out supplement a bad diet. You can't out supplement like a crazy stress-filled life. But sometimes it's part of those baby steps that you can take to try to slow down the body and create a sense of peace, like inner peace from, that you can grow over time. And so there are certain supplements that I think have really been shown to make a difference when it comes to uh, folks who are hooked or have habituation. And that includes amino acids. I've seen amino acids used really effectively in addiction and in um, uh, various use disorders that includes 5-HTP, tyrosine, a few others. Huperzine A has been shown to increase dopamine. That's also one of the supplements that's used with mixed evidence for um, Alzheimer's disease. And then the last one is progesterone, which has been shown to reduce cravings. And so, you know, you started out this question which I really appreciated with, you know, kind of looking at women and how does this show up for women? And if we go back to that first phase of perimenopause where, you know, after age 35 and some women over the age of 40, we're beginning to run out of ripe eggs that we can harvest each month. And as progesterone levels start to decline, I think sometimes cravings can increase. Yeah. And so often progesterone can help with that hyperarousal experience That's great. and with addiction. And where does, where does humility come into this? I thought this was an interesting point you made as well with humility and its role in healing and healing our dopamine deficiencies. And, you know, I think as a, as a medical practitioner, you know, graduating from where you've graduated from the notoriety that that has, I think it can be, and I'm not speaking for you. I'm, I'm just pulling from your book. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, I know more than you. And in the same, in the same way that I would, I would be telling my patients, you know what, you need to meditate <laughs> and not, and not actually thinking that, you know, to have the hubris to think that I didn't need to meditate is that where does, where does humility come into uh, healing dopamine or insufficiency? I should say dopamine insufficiency. Well, I think humility is such an important part of our daily experience, especially during the current pandemic. I think um, as a physician, I definitely had experiences like you described with, um, you know, you need to meditate. <laughs> I, I didn't meditate this morning, but you definitely need to. And you over there, you really need to. <laughs> All of if you, you tell me you don't have time. Yeah. Like that, that doesn't go over very well. I think um, our patients have a, a very highly tuned uh, radar for authenticity and, you know, for sort of outsized egos. And I've been around a lot of outside, outsized egos and I, I don't, find them very attractive. I, I find, you know, the, the people who've had the greatest influence on me in terms of mentoring or uh, teaching me concepts as I've gone through this educational training um, were the people that were the most humble. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So I think humility is really important here. Um, and it's, you know, as someone who's in recovery from addiction, I can say that humility was um, a cornerstone of my recovery, an absolute cornerstone. And my addictions, the way that they show up are things like workaholism, a sticky relationship with alcohol, uh, food addiction, um, and, and maybe as part of the medical training that I went through, having this sense, even though I would say it wasn't fully conscious, that I had godlike powers. And it sounds so ridiculous to say that now, and thank God I don't feel that way anymore, but in some ways, when you first start out, you know, as a fourth-year medical student, then as an intern, and then a resident in the medical training system that we have, which is so traumatizing, the only way that you can function is to think that you have superhuman powers, which, of course, we don't. Mm-hmm. But um, I think all of this maps back to humility. And, you know, I wrote about humility in um, this chapter, I'm trying to think if there's anything. Oh, I did make this point that I'm from Alaska, where, you know, if you're not humble in Alaska and you don't realize that humans don't have the upper power and the weather can change in five minutes, you die. So there's, you know, arrogance just doesn't get you very far in Alaska. The attitude in Alaska when I would come back in the summertime uh, from medical school was she went to Harvard, but she overcame it. Like that's, that's kind of the attitude. (laughs) Yeah. You know, she's, she's not as insufferable as some of the other people who went <laughs> to that school. Yeah. So um, I think humility, you know, a big part of humility in terms of healing, whether it's dopamine insufficiency or reward deficiency syndrome, is admitting that you don't have all the answers, admitting that you need help, admitting that um, what you've been trying to deal with the stress fracture or the addiction to online shoe shopping isn't working and you need to try something new and you probably need some accountability and you need some support. So I think that's true kind of regardless of the condition that you're facing, that humility is a big part of healing and healing. If I take it one step further and, you know, if we talk for a moment about the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, that fight, flight, freeze versus the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest, We know that the healing happens in the parasympathetic nervous system. And I think you have to have humility to dwell in the parasympathetic nervous system and even to create that balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. What do you think about that, Stephanie? I agree 1000%. That's where all your recovery comes from. Even, you know, for Marnie who had the stress fracture and is exercising. All your gains come in the recovery. All your gains come when you are able to settle in to your parasympathetics. And the sympathetic tone that you, or sympathetic dominance, I should say, that most of us develop, we get used to and addicted to the stress. We get addicted to putting our foot all the way down on the gas pedal and we forget how to brake. And, you know, I've, I've said this many a time, I think that the sympathetic the sympathetic nervous system is 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 a brilliant it is a brilliant adaptation to an immediate threat but the problem is that we never disengage from it we become addicted to it and this is why i wanted to spend so much time talking about this uh habituation 
uh, or dopamine insufficiency because I think that most of us don't, uh, we are not aware that our prefrontal cortex is off and that the limbic system is just running the show. Yeah. I agree with that. And it's, uh, I also think there's a history of not understanding some of the male and female differences Mm -hmm. with the autonomic nervous system, because the original research that was done by Walter Cannon, looking at the sympathetic nervous system and the stress response was done entirely in men. And that he's the one who coined the term uh, fight or flight, not realizing that women don't always respond that way. They mm-hmm. often will freeze or they'll have some other response. And it wasn't until the 1980s, 1990s that Shelley Taylor at UCLA realized, you know, one of the ways that women cope the best with stress is to tend and befriend. So to be a podcast host and to be a benevolent force like you are, you know, to deal with um, a crisis over COVID by staying connected with your best girlfriends and um, having kombucha happy hour with them, um, staying connected with your family if you live within a family unit. I think this tend and befriend is really the answer for so much of what ails us um, in terms of that that mismatch that many women have, and I used to have and still sometimes have, of too much stress, too much cortisol for what my constitution can handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And, I, and this is why I, I wrote an article, maybe it was a year or two ago now, um, got some blowback from the guys, of course, but it was really about the neurological reasons why women are, are designed to be leaders. And when a woman is stressed, like you said, she'll call up her girlfriends. She will tend to her children. I, the other thing I notice is I, I like to clean. That's the, the, I like to clean my environment. So I'm tending to my environment. Like what, what can I change? What can I, what can I rearrange? What flower can I, you know, what flower arrangement can I put here? Um, I don't go to war, right? Like I don't, I don't go and fight. You know, I don't, I don't pick fights with people. That's how I, that's how I process it. And I think the more, and maybe this is, you know, this is maybe off topic, but I just feel like I'm having a coffee with you right now. Like, I feel like, you know, the more that we can educate, I have, I have boys. So the more that I can educate my boys to have higher, uh, uh, to be able to identify their emotions and to not be able to, not to try to run away from them. If they're upset, they cry and they should cry. I don't, there's no such thing as, you know, boys don't cry you know, you're okay, get up. Like there, I think that the more we can impart the feminine uh, influence into the whole being, whether irrespective of your sex or your gender, um, I think the more that we can have a whole integrated male and female. So for me, I was much more male. Like I was always much more male, much more masculine energy, like achieve, 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 do this, do that, do this, do that. And for me, my slowing down is I, I didn't hit my head, but my, you know, and I've, I'm writing about this in, in, in my book, but like my menstrual, like I hated my period. My period was like the, the, my arch enemy. And of course we know that our, you know, your menstrual cycle is a vital sign for women. 
And all of the hormonal derangement that I had was because I was just rallying against it, like not listening, like I don't, not listening, I'm going to continue, continue. So I think that if we can impart more of the feminine to our type A personality, high achieving women, and more softness to our to our men and allow for that femininity to let feminine energy to flourish. I think we would, I think we might have, you know, political leaders that deal with situations, you know, in different ways that we wouldn't have wars. We wouldn't. So this is maybe this is like totally off topic, but just wanted to. No, I, I love this. We'd, maybe we'd have more Andrew Cuomo's, right? Like, <laughs> right. I think this is such an important point because you, part of what I'm hearing you say, the subtext is, um, that I, and I think this is right, although I, I didn't put this in the chapter. I think addiction or being hooked for a lot of women is the way that we rail against having too much masculine energy. And, you know, we try to cope with it by exercising more, you know, anesthetizing with wine or whatever it is. But I think you're right that, you know, the more that we sort of allow for the, um, what's true and we stay connected to that and embodied and also teach our children how to do that that's a model of wholeness that we're desperate for it's the model of wholeness that chris northrup was asking us to step up and do so i i love that and i i think you know kind of connecting the dots between um this imbalance between the masculine and feminine and how that shows up in various ways including um with addictive tendencies is very important. One of the through lines of your book, and, and not just this book, but I think and all the books that you've written is that you know, you're not stuck in, in this case, you're not stuck with the brain that that you have. It's that it can it can be improved upon over time, which I think is such a message of hope for people because often we don't realize that our thoughts often are these automatic negative thoughts that uh, uh, Dr. Daniel Amen talks about these ants that they are running the show. And I would, I would love if you, if you're willing to maybe share what it looks like for you in, you know, a day in the life of you integrating some of these holistic practices um, that you outlined here and how do you honor your brain and how you, how do you honor your body? What a lovely question. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I've been working on is structure. Structure and also a lack of structure, because I think both are important. And I even think we had an email about um, unstructured time and how yes. I think that's so important for women. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the structure that is really helping me right now is I get up before the rest of my family. That's not hard because my teenagers get up at like noon. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I get up around six because it's such a, a potent liminal time. Sometimes it's a little bit earlier. It depends on how many deadlines I have. But I, I get up early and I, I typically will make some sort of drink. I've been doing an N of one experiment with green tea. Um, and L-theanine. So I've been having a little caffeine with apologies to the cardiologist who told me not to, um, just for the sake of science. So I will make my green tea and then I'll, I'll sit and meditate. And sometimes it's um, the four, seven, eight breath, you know, four rounds and that's it. Sometimes it's a longer meditation. 30 minutes is what I know really helps me in terms of brain body connection. Um, 
and really helps me tune in. It's hard to do that with four rounds of four, seven, eight breath. Well, um, I've been, so I also agree with you about um, the ketogenic diet. I think it's meant for a therapeutic purpose, probably for a maximum of about six months, depending on what your goals are. And so I used a ketogenic diet to reset my insulin and blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There is this feeling of hope. Like you can fix your blood sugar. I used to have prediabetes. I don't anymore. So the ketogenic diet changed that. And I usually will have breakfast and I'm, I'm adding back some carbs. So I had some Greek yogurt this morning with some pumpkin seeds and um, even a little, some blueberries. I don't eat fruit generally when I'm in uh, on a ketogenic diet. And then I exercise. So I think exercise is also so sacred for women. And if I don't do it pretty early on in the morning, it's less likely to happen. So I exercise and what I'm doing while sheltering at home is the Peloton. I really love some of the instructors on the Peloton. So I, I go pretty hard with an interval training class. That's what I did today. And then I work in the sauna. <laughs> oh, that's good. I love that efficiency hack. That's good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really good. So I, you know, I'm working on trying to stay in the sauna for an hour and that's a long time to just sit there and drip and meditate, um, especially for someone who's low in dopamine. Right. I mean, I, I do okay with green tea. That gets me a few hours, but I have a setup where my laptop is right outside of the glass door and I've got my AirPods in and I'm usually watching a video or watching some educational presentation like I was today on SIRS um, and mold. And then I take a hot bath with Epsom salt um, and then I get ready for my day. That's when, you know, sort of my more public work starts. Um, So that's a pretty typical morning for me. I do that five or six days a week. I do more yoga on the weekends. Sometimes my, that meditation with the green tea will be a yoga practice for 30 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my apex is usually like some mission driven work that I want to get to during the day. So you're my apex today, Stephanie. Um, Thank you. And then I, I wind down. So I'll do some other work when we're finished today. I've got a slide deck that's due for some of the education that I do for practitioners. And then, um, and then I, I'm really, I try to be thoughtful about meals because I think I, you know, I have a food first philosophy. I think food is such an important part of who we are and how we feed our, our uh, microbiota is so essential. So I'm really intentional about food. And then we have um, a family dinner together, my husband and my two teenagers, and then we wind down. So like yesterday, we sat in the backyard, my husband and I, and we got emotionally current, which I find is very important in a marriage. Um, I had one marriage that didn't work out where I didn't do that. And so it's really important on this one. We're going on 17 years. So that's, uh, it's working well. How do you get emotionally current with each other? Well, my husband has a very different work style than me. He's, he's a type A personality. And so he, he's an entrepreneur and he's just, you know, he's got 17 business ideas before breakfast. And so he goes so hard. And um, right now, I, I think many men who are dealing with the pandemic and the crisis that's happening are 
obsessed with the stock market. <laughs> and that's certainly the case for my husband. So, you know, he needs to process the stock market and like, tell me exactly what's happening sort of hour by hour. And at the end of the day, we can actually, you know, his hyper arousal state starts to come down a little bit and he starts to breathe and we can talk about, okay, what's under this? Like what's the juicy underbelly mm -hmm. of the fear and the concern that you have about the stock market? So he channels it into, you know, he's learning options right now. Like that's, he channels that fear that I think many of us have, existential fear right now. He channels it into what for him is productive um, learning about options. And so getting emotionally current is about asking simple questions like, what went well? What was the highlight of your day? What was the best interaction that you had? What, with what went well, how does that change what you're going to do tomorrow? Um, oh, I love that question. What fears do you have? What can I do to support you? Things like that. That's great. Yeah, one of the things I've noticed with the, with the pandemic is it's bringing up a lot of, I mean, maybe 100% of the population, we've all experienced some trauma to some extent, um, big T traumas, you know, little T traumas. But it, it brings, it, it, it's, it, there's something about the lack of control, or I, I don't know, I can't put my finger quite on it, but it is, it is triggering for people. It brings up old trauma. So the fear, so maybe it's focusing and not to, you know, maybe your husband is or not, but focusing in on the stock market for me, it's okay. How can I support my, how can I give people mindset tools? Because I know that the last time that this happened where, and I, I think back to 1988 or 1989 uh, when I was a little girl and it, things were kind of, I remember feeling like the rug was going to be pulled up from under my family's feet. And if I only had someone to sort of tell me it's okay, you know, so now I'm, you know, my wound is, is I'm trying to give to other people with guided meditations, as you mentioned, and, you know, getting mindset experts on to talk about how we can move from being in a place of fear and having a shrinking, you know, existential existence to being going into gratitude where you can become more expansive. So I think that it's, it's interesting to see how people are responding to it. And some people are just flat out angry and it's a conspiracy theory. And, you know, th there's all these different permutations of it. And it's, it's been really interesting to watch. And I don't know if you've been exposed to differing opinions of healthcare professionals, but even in, in, my, in my network, there's people on like very different sides of the, of the continuum in terms of what's happening, how it's been handled, what the impact is on the economy, what it really is. Is it a virus? Is it a, is it a 5G thing? You know, there's all, there's all and everything in between. So I, I, I don't know if you've made the same observation around people's reactions. Certainly have, certainly have. And I, I agree that this is, um, as you were talking, it made me think of um, Eckhart Tolle and how he, he talks about the pain body, you know, sort of this collective pain that we carry around and it gets activated. And I think for so many folks, their pain body is activated right now. And so it shows up in different behaviors, like the conspiracy um, uh, shouting that I'm also hearing from some healthcare folks and 
you know, my husband becoming obsessed with the stock market. Um, I think it's, uh, in some ways, maybe the answer is humility. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of the answer to everything, acceptance, humility, service. I really love your point about service. Like, how can I serve? How in, this was an old wound of yours, which mm-hmm. is true for so many of us as healers that we had to take care of somebody else or we had to protect somebody else. We didn't have like this benevolent adult in our life who was saying, Stephanie, all is well, darling, you're doing great. Like you don't need to do anything else. What you're doing is fine. Yeah. And so we have to do that for ourselves. I think that's such an important piece of this. So I think humility is, is, um, is a big piece of it. Awareness, acceptance, action with a thread of humility throughout the whole thing. That's wonderful. Well, I'm really, I'm really excited for uh, your next book. I'd be super happy to uh, nerd out with you uh, offline uh, around awesome. what my, what my observations have been around keto and women. Uh, if people want to find you, learn more about you, learn more about your work, where, where can we, where can we find you on the interwebs and elsewhere? SarahGodfreedMD.com is probably the best place. That's the mothership. If you want to learn more about Brain Body Diet, BrainBodyDiet.com is probably the best resource. We've got an anxiety documentary there that's free to watch um, if anxiety is something you're experiencing in this current pandemic. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, this has been such a delightful conversation. I have enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much. And I know we had some scheduling issues. So I'm so, so thankful and appreciative that we were able to make this, this work. So thank you for your time and your brilliance today. Thank you, Stephanie. Grateful to be with you. Okay. So seriously, isn't she just the dream? She's a dream. I just had the best conversation with this woman. My favorite part of our conversation was when we sort of got really off topic and started talking about the male and female, the masculine and the feminine energies and the amalgamation of the two. I so feel like this is something that I always want to double click on. I always want to go deeper on that. And Sarah really showed up and answered. I loved her thoughts on, um, on that whole piece. So I just want to congratulate you because if you've gotten this far in the podcast, you are one of my special ones. You are someone, and let's just, I'm just standing here. Do you hear my hands? I'm clapping for you. You are someone who sets out to achieve something and sees it through to completion. I love you. I love people like you because you like me. So if you haven't already, I would love for you to rate and review the podcast. I read all of the reviews and I just would love it if you felt so inclined to do so because it helps other awesome people just like you find the podcast. And if you haven't already, I would like to personally invite you to join our Facebook community. It's a free community and it's where all the listeners, uh, I would like to put all of the listeners of the show in there so you can interact with other listeners. And this is actually where we farm our questions for the Ask Me Anything episodes that I do with Stephanie Major. So if you have a question that you want me to answer or you have a question for Stephanie Major, that's where we actually take all the questions from. So on Facebook, the community is called The Better Community. 
and you will meet other awesome people there. You'll meet me there and we're quite active in there as well. So I'd love for those things uh, for you to engage with us in those ways. And one last piece as well, if you are thinking that you are resonating with the work that I do and you're looking for more personalized coaching, I get asked this all the time. So I wanted to just offer it here. Send me an email. The email address is support, that's S-U-P-P-O-R-T, at drstephanieestima.com. So that's D-R-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E. E-S-T-I-M-A.com. And just put the word luminous in the subject. And then that will notify my team to get it right to my inbox. And then you and I can have a conversation if that's something that you would like to do. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I certainly did. And I've actually re-listened to it a couple times because I thought that there were so many gems in it. And I hope that you found the same. Have a wonderful week and I'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.